What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Zach Valisi. Today on our podcast, two deals, one big headache on the Hill, Biden's spending agenda, building back better, and a fairer tax system with Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. When a firefighter is paying more, not just in percentage terms, but literally in dollar terms, than some of these giant corporations, you know something's off. We're working on that. And AI's next wave with Eric Schmidt, former CEO and executive chairman of Google. This new generation of AI over the next decade or two is going to be an epical change in human experience because we've never had another intelligence that's human-like, that's not human. Those stories plus... It's electric. Hertz's deal with Tesla and its equally charged up CEO. This is basically Elon saying, no, we don't need your business because we've got more demand than we can possibly fill right now. It's Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And welcome back, Joe. Good to see you. Oh. Thank you. Was I out? Uh, Did that happen? Briefly. I know. That went fast. That went very fast. I know. The blur. Nice long weekend. Let's give you an update right now on the president's uh, $1.75 trillion social spending bill. Yesterday, Senator Joe Manchin demanding more time to evaluate the projected impact of that bill and refusing to endorse the framework President Biden told House Democrats was a done deal in the Senate last week. He called out his colleagues in the House for failing to vote on the bipartisan infrastructure framework or BIF. Twice now, the House has balked at the opportunity to send the BIF legislation to the president. As you've heard, there are some House Democrats who say they can't support this infrastructure package until they get my commitment on the reconciliation legislation. It is time to vote on the BIF bill up or down and then go home and explain to your constituents the decision you made. Senator Manchin's comments are the latest blow to Democrats who have hoped to have that bill finalized this week, Joe. Biff, I like that. Biff, I don't know. I think I see a uh, very preppy. From back uh, to the future. Yeah, that's what <laughs> I see. Yeah. I see Biff. Remember when Biff got really old and I guess that was the. Future. That's kind of what this bill looks like at this point, too. It's been around <laughs> long enough. And, yeah. Um, he was a bad guy. Bad guy. What he did to was poor. Not nice. You know, this is just interesting to see the latest steps on this. Manchin makes a fair point. He hasn't seen the legislation. It's not been the text has not been uh, written at this point or kind of gone over. He wants to see that. He said he's seen some games that he thinks are being played with some of the numbers. Um, but this is a huge issue because how many deadlines have we now passed now that we thought we'd see movement or some action that's taken place? And, you know, even last week was the latest on this. They were saying this week, and that is not going to happen. We're together right now, standing up, not as Republicans, not as Democrats, but as Virginians. And we're taking back it. 
couple of elections today, uh, Becky. I don't, I'm going I'm to vote, as we all should. But uh, I don't know what uh, what happens in New Jersey. Murphy is pretty popular still. He's a gregarious guy when we have him on. He's, you know, I like him too. But uh, the guy has made some gains. Chitterelli, we had him on uh, as well, Jack Chitterelli. But down in, in Virginia, and it's not over till it's over, and a lot of early voting would have, have favored probably Terry McAuliffe. But uh, in recent days, the momentum seems that I wore a vest in today. I felt like, I, and I looked at it, I go, oh, my God, I look like Glenn Youngkin, sort of. But uh, he, he wears that vest and gets a lot what, what, what do they call it? Uh, McAuliffe keeps calling him uh, the orange man in a vest. Doesn't, doesn't mean you're still not the, the bad orange man. Uh, so, but that, Is that the what you're I calling bring it yourself up, now? The bad orange man in the, the vest? Bad, uh, no, I'm saying that in the vest I look like Glenn, kind of like Glenn. Actually, he's a pretty good-looking guy, that guy, uh, Youngkin. Um, a Carlisle guy. Guess how Glenn Youngkin is finishing his campaign. He is doing an event with Donald Trump here in Virginia. But we'll see what happens. I think that matters, too. If there was a big sort of a uh, almost a because Virginia is is certainly like a, a bluish shade of purple, purple at this yeah. point at the very best. So if this is a, uh, a real statement, I don't know what that means for, for, for people like Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema and some of the other moderates that that maybe feel like they're getting railroaded. Uh, with some of the stuff. And Manchin's main point was that it's not one and three quarters. It's actually 1.85. But when you really, if you know that the, these programs are not going to be just two years, then it's really probably twice as much. And he's just saying, why not be honest? And he's totally vilified. I mean, he's like, I think Kathy Griffin might, you know, have Manchin's head, you know, decapitated at some point. I, I mean, the left can't stand this guy. So, right? Yeah, that's what his constituency thinks that I think he's more concerned about. Well, so you don't you don't think he's sincere about. Oh, the, no, no, no. I, I, I I'm not saying that. It's just, you know, it's not his job to make sure he's appeasing the entire Democratic Party. It's his job to represent his constituents, just as it is every one of the senators and, and well, congressmen I've, who are there. I've said, where are the other moderate senators whose job is not just to appease you know, their voters either? It's to, you know, for the, best, for the good of the country. Well, this, this bill is very controversial for for we're going to have judge on. I'm going to ask him about, you know, Joe and Penelope. I'm Joe. My wife is Penelope. His kids are Joe and Penelope. I got to ask him, but you don't think it had anything. He didn't know. No, probably. Yeah, guessing not. I don't think it was an ode. (laughs) Well, I I took it that way. And I I will ask him. I love a great name. Tesla actually hit a one trillion dollar market cap for the first time a week ago after Hertz announced that it would grow its fleet of electric cars with an initial order of 100,000 Teslas by the end of next year. But Elon Musk has a new message to investors, tweeting in response to a picture of Tesla's stock chart. You're welcome. If any of this is based on Hertz, I'd like to emphasize that no contract has been signed yet. Tesla has far more demand than production. Therefore, we will only sell cars to Hertz for the same margin as to consumers. Hertz deal has zero effect on our economics. Here's what interim Hertz CEO Mark Fields told us just last Wednesday. We have relationships with all of the automakers. And we want to help them as they introduce their electrified vehicles. We're going to them, not on a kind of transactional basis. Hey, how can you give us some more cars? It's a strategic discussion that says, how can we help you achieve your objectives? We've done that with Tesla and our intent is to do that with all of the automakers. 
So take a look at Tesla shares right now, down by about 5%. Again, this is not the first time that uh, Elon has come out and said, you know, I don't understand the stock price is too high. If this is because of this, let's pay attention to it. Although it's probably worth pointing out that this could be a negotiation tactic if they haven't signed that deal yet. If Hertz was pushing for a better deal for a lower price, this is basically Elon saying, no, we don't need your business because we've got more demand than we can possibly fill right now. You should check out the other electric car makers right now too. Tesla shares, as we mentioned, down by almost 5%. Lucid off by about 4.6%. Some of the other makers down as well. And, and guys, Hertz shares, after they announced this deal last week, were up more than 20% too. So you kind of wonder what this all means. I wonder how it's going to play out. I did reach out to Mark Fields, but I just did it uh, about 10 minutes ago. It's very early in the morning. Maybe we'll hear back from him a little later this morning too. Also, some news just crossing the wires on this, too. Tesla is recalling 11,700 U.S. vehicles because a communication error may cause a false forward collision warning or unexpected activation of the operating software. It filed the recall notice with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, and that's probably why you see some of this downward pressure on the stock right now, too. All right. Reach out. Uh, if you ask, can you call Charlie Munger and ask him about this this dorm prison he's building? Did you see all the? All the I've spoken with Charlie about this. This is a, th- a project he's been working on for a very long time. He's giving all the money for it. You um, see, he, Santa his only key right? was he wanted to he wanted to design the building the way he thought was best. He spent right. a lot of time thinking about no it. No windows. And this like weird yeah. artificial light. You're like. Yeah. Uh, That, you know, that's literally it's been years. I talked with him about this years ago. That was part of the plans all all the way through on this. Why? Because it's it's a more effective, efficient way of getting more people in the different dorms. Every every room, every every room's a single. So you don't have any roommates. There are all these common areas and places that you share. But the the give on that is you don't get a window. You do have the ambient light. You need to be go on YouTube. You need to be paroled to leave it to go out to go to class. Or do you? You don't need but it. at least uh, there are a lot of people who would like to have their own room. Uh, you should go on YouTube because this exists at the University of Michigan. This already exists. There, there, there is a though. Munger Hall there. You did it. Yeah. And there are people okay. who have created videos of their dorm rooms there. Not, and you can dystopian. see what it looks like. It's not dystopian. With the windows, without the windows. with The, the ones in Michigan, I think, each have their own bathroom. I, I'm not sure whether I'd be happy or not with it, but you... Go online and check it out. Obviously, when Squawk is over at at 9 a.m. Who needs windows at UCSB? I mean, of all the colleges in the world, that's the one place that... Next on Squawk Pod, building back better, or trying to. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg on the president's spending bill. A lot of leading economists have pointed out that these things are also going to help fight inflation in the long term. I think an underreported benefit of the Build Back Better package. And getting lawmakers on board. I'm still holding out hope that some Republicans might, just might, decide that it could be a good thing to invest in the long-term capacity of this country. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 
electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. President Biden's economic agenda, the massive $1.75 trillion spending package, and the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure framework remains, still, as usual, in the balance, awaiting agreement from Democrats to head to the floor of the U.S. House for a vote. That's Thank a, you. A simple welcome. question. Are you holding an infrastructure vote today? Have you made that decision? So are you holding an infrastructure vote today? Are you holding House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said she expects a vote on both packages later this week. But yesterday, moderate Democrat Senator Joe Manchin chimed in. Twice now, the House has balked at the opportunity to send the BIF legislation to the president. And once again asked for more time before he makes a decision. Simply put, I will not support a bill that is this consequential without thoroughly understanding the impact that it'll have on our national debt, our economy, and most importantly, all of our American people. Manchin scolded the progressive members of his party for holding the bipartisan infrastructure framework hostage, saying that he might not vote for it after all. Leader of the House Progressive Caucus, Representative Pramila Jayapal, so what do you make of Manchin? spoke to reporters on the steps of the Capitol last night. I am going to trust the president. Our members are going to trust the president. And um, we are going to do the job that we need to do, which is pass it through, pass both bills through the House. And whatever Senator Manchin says is, is you know, up to him. Time is running out for Democrats as we're about to enter an election year. The death of the filibuster is on the table, and nobody wants to be blamed for slowing anything down. Joe, Becky, and Andrew talked about the state of the president's agenda today on our TV broadcast with U.S. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg, after we got some other important business taken care of. Here's Joe Kernan. Mr. Secretary, it's good to see you. You know, my wife's birthday was, uh, uh, was Sunday. Do you know what her name is, Mr. Secretary? Let me just go ahead and wish her a happy birthday while I got the chance. Penelope, my name is Joe. Oh, fantastic. Her name, her name. name is Penelope. <laughs> yeah, Joe and Penelope. Now, that's a coincidence, right? People were wondering whether that's not it. And I, I don't, uh, your Joe is not named after Manchin or me. Have I got that right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his grandfather was named Joseph. Nothing against other great Josephs oh, in the world. Joe and Penelope, I love that. Congratulations. The other... Thing that, that, and I'm, you might, can we make the three-month family leave? Can we start that at, like, two years? I mean, can I skip those first two? Uh, <laughs> you, it, that's the best age for them. Have you considered that? That make, might make it more palatable, I think. You know, you know, I didn't think I would be into the, the baby phase of things. I, my, I always thought before I became a father that it would be, you know, once, once we yeah. can talk about books, that's when I'll really Someone enjoy else it. should and i got to tell you, it's, it's the most incredible it thing. Is. It's hard. I mean, they, they are going to eat. Every Tell three hours, it. no matter oh, it's what not time eat, it is. Eating's not but, the problem, uh, Mr. Secretary. What a, what a sweet time. <laughs> Eating, eating's just <laughs> half the problem. Uh, okay, so we were talking about what's going on. Um, uh, with, I got here's something that, that Senator Manchin said, and, and hopefully you, you can respond to this. As more of the details uh, outlined in the basic framework are released, what I see are shell games and budget gimmicks that make the real cost 
of this one and three quarter trillion dollar bill estimated to be twice as high uh, if if the programs are extended or made payment. And he's just saying, why not be honest about what the cost will be before we do this? Is that is he just appeasing West Virginia voters or is that a genuine uh, request from Joe Manchin? What do you think? Well, look, to be voted on, the bill has a text, and everything is there literally in black and white. It's being scored, and the president has laid out how to pay for this so that it is deficit neutral uh, or better. So, look, I heard him mention, I think, three things he was concerned about, what it'll do to the debt, what it'll do for the economy, and what it'll do for the country, and very confident that there are very good answers uh, on that front, which is why we're very confident that this framework and and these two pieces of legislation are going to move through uh, both houses of Congress, that Democrats, you know, moderates and progressives will unite. And I'm still holding out hope that some Republicans might, just might, decide that it could be a good thing to uh, invest in the long-term capacity of this country and make sure child care is more affordable, get our three- and four-year-olds in, in kinder, you know, pre-kindergarten education. I mean, these are things that countries do in order to remain competitive. A lot of leading economists have pointed out that these things are also going to help flight, fight inflation in the long term. I think an underreported benefit of the Build Back Better package. Uh, so if he has those concerns, uh, then uh, that, that's fair game. There are good answers to those concerns. And I didn't view uh, uh, anything is changing in terms of the momentum around this package. I said a few days ago we're closer than we've ever been. I think as the sun comes up today, we are closer still. And obviously I can't wait to see this thing uh, signed, sealed, and delivered so that uh, my department can get to work on deploying our part of these packages and getting those roads, bridges, airports, and uh, ports and more. Well, yeah, that's, now we're back. That, that's the other bill. And that, that's the other thing that Manchin mentioned, that, that he resents being held hostage for, for the bipartisan infrastructure side of things by, uh, by this other bill. And we go back and forth, but one's one and, and one's the other. They, the journal points out today that the, the CBO, there's, they're not going to be able to score it before it's voted on. And they, they say this much vaunted framework, framework is like a house with only two by fours in place. The rest of the things are going to be added before anyone can really look at what the implications are, whether it will be uh, debt financed, uh, deficit financed, whether it will be uh, inflationary, that we won't know because we're not going to know what the final product is and we're going to be voting on it. There's no merit to that argument either from Manchin? Well, look, we have been laying out how we envision paying for this thing since, since the spring. And it's, it's really clear fundamentally what it comes down to, which is tax fairness. And, and one of my favorite things about this package is as Americans hear how we are proposing to pay for it, support goes up even higher than the almost ridiculously high level of support that, that this legislation has among the American people because they, they can see what the, the benefits of the bill will do for them, right? It's very easy for people under, to understand how their family would be impacted by uh, pre-K free for three- and four-year-olds when right now the average family spends, I think, 8600 bucks on that. It's very easy for, for Americans to compete what you would do with that $300 a month uh, child tax credit, what it would be like in your life if you could knock off $12,500 off the cost of an electric vehicle, buy it, and never have to worry about gas prices again. But I think also Americans are conscious of living in a tax system that that just isn't very fair. Giant corporations making billions in profits, we're happy for them to be profitable, but but paying zero in taxes. I mean, when a firefighter's paying more, not just in percentage terms, but literally in dollar terms, than some of these giant corporations, you know something's off. We're working on that, right? There's this remarkable achievement of the global minimum tax and a lot of other things going on that'll offset that. So, of course, 
uh, the, you get into the guts of it, the black and white, the text, the details. There's a lot to quibble over, a lot to examine. Uh, but at the end of the day, the bill will, by definition, uh, is voted on as a concrete black and white document that uh, every one of the members of the House and the Senate who's asked to support it uh, has a chance to scrutinize and decide if they're for or against. Mr. Secretary, what did I ask you about one component of, uh, of this bill that has caused a lot of debate on our program, in fact, uh, which is uh, the, the plan to effectively advantage um, car manufacturers that use uh, union labor over others that would include, of course, the Teslas of the world and the Toyotas of the world. We've had an executive from Toyota on the program. By my math, it looks to me like Tesla employees and possibly Toyota employees in certain cases are being paid better than union employees at the other car manufacturers. So I'm trying to understand what the, the, the policy strategy is here. Well, look, we've said from the outset that uh, we want to make sure we're creating more good-paying American union jobs in this country. Now, w- when you look at the EV race, uh, it's been clear for some time that electric is where industry is going. Uh, but what's not going to happen on its own is uh, for it to happen, A, fast enough to beat the climate challenge, B, happen on American soil as much as possible, uh, and C, where possible, happen with uh, good-paid American union labor. So this tax incentive package is set up to promote all of those things. First, the baseline, right, just getting more electric, period. And, and that's kind of the, the core of these incentives. And then, yeah, look, we, we love anytime uh, someone buys an electric car, but we're going to love it a little bit more when it's an American car made on American soil, uh, when it's an American company. That's, uh, that's something the president cares strongly about, just like we believe that you know, some of these issues with, with supply but chains I think, I think the question is why, why would be easier one if it was made at home. I understand that made-at-home issue, but we're talking about automakers that are making them at home, some with union labor, some without. In some cases, there's been employees that are not part of the union who've actually decided on their own not to unionize because they actually think they're getting paid better. And so what I'm trying to understand is, is why, from a policy perspective, you want to advantage those over those other employees and those companies. Well, our policy is that uh, when workers have union protections, they are more secure. Uh, communities tend to be stronger. And, you know, as the president often says, unions built the middle class. Uh, so it's something we believe in. As you noted, it's not a requirement to get in on this incentive at all, but it does uh, create some, some encouragement for, for that kind of work. I mean, look, I, I come from the industrial Midwest. Uh, I've seen what is possible when keep, people can rely on that kind of support for their families, the social, as well, uh, the social capital as well as economic capital that's built up. I don't know if uh, uh, there's an apples-to-apples apples comparison across some of these firms. Anytime a firm pays its employees well, that's good news, and we welcome that. Uh, but uh, I think we all know that there are certain protections that a lot of workers in the auto industry and other industries are, are going without, that it's no accident that the gradual erosion of union support and participation since the 80s happened at the same time as an explosion of inequality and an increase in financial insecurity for the American working and middle classes. And this president has been extremely clear, including when he was running, right? I mean, he, he got elected president largely uh, on uh, his promise that he was going to be a very pro-worker president. And this is part of that.
I wanted to ask you about what's been happening with airlines. I know there are almost 5,000 incidences of uh, unruly passenger reports that have been reported already this year. Um, that's the highest number we've ever seen. There have been concerns uh, from the airline attendants in particular who feel like they get kind of attacked every day when they show up for work, or at least there's a potential for that happening. Um, over the weekend, you made some comments about sharing the no-fly list, meaning if one airline has banned someone, you, you think all the airlines should be sharing that information and then jointly banning them from every airline? So th- this issue of, of unruly passengers is, is completely unacceptable. Let's start with that. Uh, I think we, we can all agree on that. It endangers not just flight attendants, who is, as the captain always says, when you're uh, settling into your seat, they're there for your, primarily for your safety. Uh, but it also en- endangers the entire traveling public. Uh, and so there, there can be no tolerance for that. Now, there are a lot of measures that, that we think are making a difference. I'm particularly encouraged to see prosecutors following up. Uh, we've seen some DOJ actions that make a big difference. The FAA is acting with fines and enhanced attention to this. Uh, but what, what, uh, to get to your question, a lot of airlines now are looking at their own uh, practice of, of banning certain passengers from flying again because they behaved in a way that's totally unacceptable. So now ideas are, are on the table about uh, maybe making those interoperable. Is there a way for different airlines to be able to share information about problem passengers. Uh, there obviously is a precedent in a very different context with national security uh, for no-fly lists. All of these ideas, I think, deserve to be on the table. Uh, I'm not favoring any one proposal. Uh, these are, are the, the exact kind of things that are easier said than done when you think about making sure that their uh, privacy and security uh, concerns are looked after. But what we know is that we have reached an utterly unacceptable level of this kind of treatment of, of flight crews in the air. Uh, FAA is responding, prosecutors are responding, airlines are responding, flight attendants unions are responding. And if that's not enough to solve the problem, then we've got to get together and see what else we can do. Mayor Pete, what? Uh, oh, I called you Mayor Pete. I, I got to, I really I'll like, always uh, you, answer to that. Once mayor, always mayor. <laughs> okay, Mr. Secretary. The Port of Los Angeles, we're going to talk to uh, the executive director. Can you update us on, on the current state of things and, and supply chain issues that uh, you're dealing with. Have you been out there? Have you looked at? Uh, I was on a plane and I did see a bunch of uh, big ships outside Savannah, like 30 of them, just like like anchored there. Is that easing? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the ports in California are getting a lot of the attention, rightly so. I mean, those two ports, L.A. Long Beach, that's 40 percent of it right there. But you look at Savannah, a lot of other places uh, across the U.S., and you're seeing that. I've uh, been on the ground at, at some of these ports. We've had a lot of virtual convenings as well, and, and I'm sure you'll get a good update from, from the executive director who I really enjoy working with. Look, the good news is we've been able to get to those 24-7 operations. We've seen some improvements in terms of the dwell times, the amount of times that containers are sitting there. Uh, but also, it's very important to recognize just how many pieces there are in this chain. When, when you see a ship waiting out there uh, out offshore in Savannah or, or uh, San Pedro Bay or anywhere else, uh, the issue that has the ship sitting out there may have nothing to do with the ship itself. It may have to do with the availability of trucks and truckers to get the, the containers out of the port so there's room for the ship. Uh, it might have to do with the availability of chassis. In particular, we're looking at the trucking side of things uh, because, uh, you know, truckers, in fact, there's a, there's a really interesting post. I think it's, it's leading on, on medium.com uh, right now, buy a trucker. I don't agree with some of his pessimism about our 24-7 ops, but it gives you a really good picture of what truckers are up 
against, including have their, having their time wasted, uh, which is why there will be new uh, fines and fees introduced for uh, shipping companies that uh, just let their containers sit there. All of that's to say it's very complex, but there's good progress being made, and uh, we are going to continue to see that both on the administration side and on the ground with the ports. Right, we're going to let you go. Do you, it, when I was a kid, I was either Joey or Joseph, or I was, if I was in trouble, I was actually Joseph. Do, do you have a preference? What do you do? do you, is it Joe, Joey, or Joseph? You know, we're actually calling him Gus right now. His middle name is August, but uh, uh, yeah. If, you know, that's not fair. Trouble, that is not fair. That. that is not fair. It's, <laughs> so it's Gus and Penelope. It's not Joe and Penelope then. Well, well you know, we'll, we'll see what he grows into. But yeah, for now, for now, it's Gus. Joseph, we call him Gus. Thank you, uh, uh, Mr. Secretary. See you later. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, beware the machines. Even the former Google CEO says so. Eric Schmidt on his new book and the new generation of artificial intelligence. The AI that we foresee will be much, much more powerful than what we're seeing right now. We're going to have a lot of people being manipulated in one way or the other, and that's not good. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Stand by, Joe. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Is Mike Q. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick uh, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And it's already Tuesday. Yes, it is. Tuesday. I keep telling myself that. You've got to be cross-eyed, though, because, I mean, I hear it so often now about all these eyes being everywhere. And, and I've I got to be on Virginia. All eyes are on Virginia. All eyes are on the Fed. All eyes are on the They're not. You've got to be Never a potato. say that. You gotta Ban be a that. potato. They have lots of eyes. <laughs> That's true. Or maybe a fly that's got all those. Uh, they only yeah. have two, but uh, they can look bizarre. Remember Jeff Goldblum? I do. The fly. Yeah, yeah. That's good. All right. I want to get straight to our next big guest. He's out with a new book today on artificial intelligence and how it will permanently change people's relationship with reality. It's an especially pertinent conversation given the recent one about Facebook's use of AI and both its intended and unintended consequences. Joining us right now, first on CNBC, is former Google executive chairman and CEO Eric Schmidt. He's, of course, the co-founder of Schmidt Futures and co-author of The Age of AI and Our Human Future. Good morning to you, Eric. Congratulations on the book. Um, I have to admit I'm confused because I've read the book and I can't tell in the end. I know you're you're an optimist. I know you're an optimist, but I can't tell if you really love this technology and think it's going to change our world for the better or if there's an underlying anxiety throughout the book about what's really happening here. Well, of course, the truth is both. And um, if you take a look at what AI is doing, the transformation in science, biology, sociology, the way we deal with information, it's extraordinary. But what happened 20 years ago is when I was working on this, we did not understand the implications in the technology industry of what this would do to society. And so the book is about what AI will do to society 
most of which is good, but some of which is very worrisome. So if you could go, actually, let me ask it this way then. If you could go back in time 20 years ago, and now we're talking really about social media and, and, and the way the internet exists today, what do you think you would have done differently? Well, the key thing that we now understand is that AI systems optimize against a specific objective function. Literally, they go for whatever you train them at for, if you will. And if you look at what's going on, for example, with social media, they're trying to maximize revenue. The best way to have revenue is to have more engagement. That is more usage. More usage you get with more outrage. Therefore, you get more outrage. And the AI that we foresee will be much, much more powerful than what we're seeing right now. And so we're going to have a lot of this. We're going to have a lot of people being manipulated in one way or the other. And that's not good. How do we prevent that? Well, it starts with, with trying to figure out what the real problem is. And the real problem is that these systems are going to spend more and more time affecting the way our world looks to us. Um, these systems are dynamic. They cannot explain themselves. They are emergent in the sense that there's behaviors we don't expect, and they are still learning. And the book is about what happens when humans interact with that kind of intelligence. What we say in the book is that this new generation of AI over the next decade or two is going to be an epical change in human experience because we've never had another intelligence that's human-like, that's not human. We'll be working with it, but we'll also get mad at it. We'll be worried about it. It will change things. It will change the way a child grows up. It will change the way we do um, a military strategy. It's how do we do defenses? How do we do war at the speed of milliseconds? These sorts of questions no one's asking. We hope we've written the first book that will start a whole generation of people thinking about how to solve these problems. But do we need almost a global body? I, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't know if we should use the word regulation, but to oversee this, because, you know, you and I have often talked about the U.S. and China. And I know there's a, a great uh, a fight going on over who who's going to win that A.I. battle. But their approach to this, I imagine, is going to be very different than ours, for example. Well, of course it is. And in fact, they've established a goal of being dominant in artificial intelligence by 2030. Since AI will be the basis of pretty much every industry that you talk about on Squawk Box, it's really important that American firms and the West be the leaders, be the economic and structural and scientific leaders in the space. Can you imagine if all the companies that you talked about were in fact Chinese and not American made? That's the kind of stuff we're talking about, the power of this technology. We spend a lot of time in, in our book talking about network platforms. One of the core things that we believe is it important that global network platforms reflect American values, Western values, and not Chinese values. So we're in a competition. The interesting thing about the competition is that there's no discussion about what the rules of the competition should be. There's no diplomacy about what happens with cyber war. There's no diplomacy with, with what happens with conflict that occurs so quickly that could be destabilizing. We go on and on about the, the societal implications that people have not thought about in our book, which is why I'm so excited about it. Eric, uh, on the screen, I don't know if you can see it, we have a list of what used to be the FANG stocks. I, I saw in the column by Maureen Dowd over the weekend, which was great, that you've renamed it the MANG stocks, and we have meta platforms here. And, and the reason I even raise it is because when you talk about building platforms, I, I'm curious about who you think controls all of this in the end, whether there are a bunch of, a bunch of companies that do it separately or if it's going to be uh, integrated in a way that it isn't today. 
Well, the, the genius of the American system is you have the government helping with early funding, uh, venture capital making these companies possible, enormous capital available. These are multi-trillion dollar corporations, which is incredible, and they're going to continue to grow. They're not going to get combined into one company or anything like that. And it's going to be difficult to regulate them because they're so di- they're so complicated in the way that they work. We've got to come to some agreements on, for example, AI-enabled war. What does it mean to allow for misinformation? What is the rule? One of the things that we we didn't understand 10 years ago was that governments would use the internet to affect elections. That's clearly not okay. We did not understand that these AI-enabled systems would become so good that they can target the particular biases of specific individuals and they can be used for misinformation. But Eric, here's the complicated part. The complicated part is a lot of uh, tech executives, including Mark Zuckerberg and others, have said, please come regulate us. We can't do this on our own. We shouldn't be doing this on our own. But then when it comes to the actual moments of regulation, this is sort of like the tax to debate. A lot of people say, please come tax me. But then the second we actually have to tax them, it, it gets complicated quickly. How do you do it? Well, you have the problem when, when a company asks for regulation, you have the problem of regulatory capture where the corporation can essentially capture the regulators and they can sort of coexist. This field is so new. What we call for in the book is actually a renaissance of thinking about this. We've got to get the technical people talking to the philosophers and talking to the people who understand human psychology. These systems will change the way we live. Uh, Imagine, for example, a baby growing up that's got their best friend is not a human, it's a computer. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about the shaping of that young mind? That's an experiment we've never done. We're going to have to come up with mechanisms and collective agreement on how that should behave. Um, the general answer in, in, um, in capitalist systems is competition. The problem is that these systems can compete in such a way that they will optimize against specific objectives. We want everyone to be happy or at least mostly happy. We don't want them to optimize around a specific thing, which is what's happening today, which is around engagement. Uh, while I have you here, I got to ask a couple couple quick questions. Uh, I did mention Meta before. I'm very curious about the rebranding of Meta and your take on that, given that you lived uh, through the rebranding, but also the reorganization, which I think is different in this case uh, of Google to Alphabet. You, you know, it's funny that when you you spend your time talking about a company, about the founders and the organization instead of the products, that's always a loss. Right. I, I look forward to excellent innovation in the metaverse. I've been waiting for about 30 years. Um, The metaverse is a very interesting idea. It's essentially a virtual world that we would inhabit. As to whether Facebook will build that, I don't know. I guess I should call them meta. But I'm going to continue to call them Facebook. Everyone's still called Google, Google, um, which is, I think, how it really works. You know, it's interesting that um, meta means more comprehensive and transcendent. And so Facebook will now have to be more more comprehensive and transcendent at what it does. Um, The promise of the metaverse is very powerful. So uh, if they pull it off, which will be presumably more than a decade, you can imagine virtual worlds that you'll live in, right? And that the world that you live in will be, you'll be younger and more powerful and, and stronger and, and you'll have greater fun and all that kind of stuff. I wonder what happens when the metaverse is so powerful that you choose to live in the metaverse and not in the real world. That's another question we talk about in our book. If you're a regulator hearing about the metaverse for the first time, does this make you more inclined to think, okay, we got to regulate these companies or less inclined? I mean, is this a, a shift here? I, I don't think that the conversation with regulate, about regulation and metaverse is at the right time. Um, what, people keep writing laws to regulate killer robots. 
well, we're not building killer robots. We're building systems that everyone will coexist with, which are in, su- in some sense much more powerful and much more dangerous because they'll be with you every day. We're going to have to figure it out. I don't think we know. I don't think regulators today have the right formulation for even how to discuss this. Eric Schmidt, uh, the book is called The Age of AI and Our Human Future. It's great to see you. Good luck with it. Thank you. Looking forward to seeing you in person soon. Yes. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings at 6 a.m. Eastern on CNBC. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right to your ears, listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.